It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Laura Perry. Hi Laura. Hi Nat. According to Andrew Blakers, in his recent article in The Conversation, solar is now the most popular form of new electricity generation worldwide, and some 73 gigawatts of net new solar photovoltaic capacity was installed in 2016. As residential solar PV and solar hot water systems become more prevalent, new challenges become apparent. And these are issues that we hadn't really considered much before today, but our guest is going to show us the way through this quagmire. So the technology for us to capitalise on our solar resources is surging ahead. And as often happens, the regulatory and legal structures to support the technology changes are lagging. And this is resulting in some interesting legal issues. Today, we're talking to Peter Clark, who's at the coalface of these issues. As a planning lawyer, he's working to ensure his clients have appropriate access to solar resources. Peter, welcome to the show. G'day, great to be here. Thanks so much for making the time to come and join us and spend some time with our listeners this morning. So, Peter, what type of disputes are arising around access to sunlight? There's a couple of fronts. You have access to private open living spaces, um, and that's something that uh, does have some degree of protection in law in a number of jurisdictions around Australia. But obviously we need to deal with, with discuss disputes that involve sunlight to skylights, solar panels, uh, solar hot water heaters. Uh, these are some slightly less clear areas that disputes have arisen in the past and it's arguable that the responses that have been made by courts acting on policies put in place by councils, government departments, that they're not quite doing enough to protect that right to light, so to speak, and there's yeah, definitely some opportunities there. So you mentioned that there's some existing regulation around access to sunlight. What's the existing policies and procedures well, around that? Yeah, of course. So there are quite a number of states in Australia, there is the requirement under apartment design guidelines, development control plans, Basically stating that on the winter solstice, you need to have a certain number of hours of direct sunlight into the living spaces of a home. And that's obviously a guideline put in place to, to guide the architects um, who are preparing the plans for a, a new development. Um, but it's also a requirement that's put in place to be considered when uh, the overshadowing of a neighbouring development is uh, something that needs to be considered, uh, hopefully before it reaches a stage where a dispute needs to you know, be before you have to take action in a court of competent jurisdiction, and that might be the um, Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, VCAT, uh, in New South Wales. You're looking usually at the Land and Environment Court. Um, there's not quite uh, so much a specialist jurisdiction in other... specialist court in other jurisdictions, but Queensland, you've got um, a special tribunal as well. I think the 
specific issues that you find arising as a result of those guidelines are that sometimes three hours of direct sunlight on the winter solstice into an open living area, um, it's quite simply not enough for um, a home that has been designed with passive solar guidelines to actually absorb enough heat to be effective and to capitalise on that design, which usually is substantially more expensive to uh, design and then to construct than your, your typical construction. So it's a, it's a bit of a concern there. So those, those rules are based around um, general livability and, and kind of human needs rather than um, solar energy requirements, is that right? That's absolutely right. Yes, so they don't, they weren't um, put in place envisioning the amount of sun that needs to fall into a thermal body like um, an internal concrete slab that then absorbs that heat and uh, releases it over the course of the day, therefore obviating the need to have any kind of heating in the house. So it is, I suppose, uh, an outdated protection of of access to to light. And, uh, in my opinion, while obviously being reasonable and uh, not stymieing the ability for you know, regional development on neighbouring lots. It's definitely in need of a bit of an overhaul. Yes, yeah, so has, has that issue, particular issue been argued successfully at all, Peter, in, in terms of passive solar heating and, and people's right to access consistent with the design of their house? Yes, but only in a circumstance that you probably couldn't rely upon as a precedent to, to point to and say this is what needs to happen in every such um, matter in every jurisdiction in Australia. One such decision that, I, that, that immediately jumps to mind um, is Deodato and Moreland City Council 2014. It's uh, a decision of uh, VCAT. There was a, a, a doctor who designed a very sustainably and ecologically sustainable development. And he really wanted to capitalise on the um, passive solar design elements that he could with the orientation of his property and also um, of the house built on it. The issue was that after um, spending quite some considerable amount of money with this new development, his northern neighbours, understandably, and um, they, they lodged a, a planning proposal to put uh, four two-storey developments, the issue being, of course, that that would then overshadow his the northern part of his property, that private open living space, which had been designed with all of these solar passive uh, passive solar design principles in mind so there was, um, that was really was, key key to the whole design absolutely and the problem is that his uh, he managed to obtain a 7.5 energy efficiency star rating which is exceptional and very little heating would obviously be needed and that was going to have dropped to 6.9 stars as a result of the uh, neighboring development so what was the the outcome in that instance well uh, VCAT uh, imposed conditions on the development. They let it go ahead, but they imposed conditions basically requiring it to be stepped back. Um, so rather than having the two storeys right up against the southern boundary um, of that lot and therefore very close to the northern part of um, the, the applicant's house, uh, they basically stepped it back such that they could still obtain the same floor space, maximise the development potential of their lot. However, they effectively removed a substantial amount possibly, I think, even all of the overshadowing that had been proposed, so long as it didn't allow the um, passive solar-designed house to drop below 7.4 star energy rating, it was allowed to go ahead, and on that basis it did. So there was a a compromise in that respect. Yeah, and it sounds like it was a reasonable compromise that suited all parties and that that access to sunlight was seen as a legitimate basis for concern. 
Yes, indeed. And, and it, I think the, the key words are reasonableness and legitimate expectations because, I mean, this, that very council, Moreland City Council, is one that's rather proactive in terms of adopting these sorts of principles. Um, they basically say that when it comes to overshadowing not so much of living spaces but of solar panels, for example, to, to briefly skip onto that topic, the outcome test is about you know what's reasonable as opposed to you can't have any overshadowing whatsoever because there is a legitimate expectation that planning controls might allow for development to go to a certain height and as much as we'd love to protect that you know that right to light for that um, the person who's just put a five kilowatt system on their roof um, and, a, and a battery in their basement to prevent a 20 unit affordable housing development going up next door in land where it's allowed to be zoned to that height. Unfortunately, that's just not reasonable. So other solutions need to be explored, and I think that is an area of opportunity as well. So in the absence of clear guidelines or rules around solar panels on roofs, what factors do tribunals take into account to determine these cases? Yeah, so okay, so let's say, for example, you are in a residential area and you're right on adjoining land that's been recently rezoned to a a high-density residential dwelling Houses can be, or residential flat buildings can be permitted to a height, let's say, for example, eight metres, which is substantially higher than the you know, height that may have been permitted before. And there are plenty of circumstances where people living right on, I suppose, in that transition zone between low density residential and, and medium to high density residential, especially if they have those new, newly rezoned areas to the north, those the fact that that land has been rezoned to that indicates that the land should be permitted to be developed uh, to that height in the public interest, as the courts have held in plenty of circumstances. In those circ- in those cases, you would be hard pressed to uh, have existing solar panels protected. The, the amount of light falling onto them, you may may as well take them down off the roof, and mm. that light there is a is a problem because there's no mechanism whatsoever that allows for uh, a statutory mechanism, I should say, that allows for the person whose solar collectors have been impacted adversely to be compensated for the removal or the relocation of their panels in any way. So in terms of guidelines, in the absence of some sort of, I'm not going to say countrywide because that would be very difficult given the nature of our different planning regimes, but at least on a state-by-state basis, in the absence of any concrete guideline it's, it's really it comes down to private agreements which unfortunately because they're private um, we quite often don't hear about them we don't know what great examples there are out there of people who've been able to reach agreements with the developers who you know understandably have the right to you know, erect new development um, and it's just going to have that adverse impact do you um, think there's a one, role for council here mm, Councils have, I mean, in New South Wales, for example, councils have development control plans that set a whole lot of guidelines, but they are only guidelines, not rules that you'd find in the actual environmental planning instruments. They are to be followed only to a certain extent, and in the event that a developer might take a council to court for refusing to grant them permission to erect a development just because Mm -hmm. a neighbour is going to have their panels overshadowed, um, it would basically not be a determinative factor, and that's a problem. Mm. I guess, what about councils in the preliminary stages with the actual 
encouraging of putting solar on roofs, could there be consideration in giving the resident or the building owner a, um, a bit of a heads up as to what the planning permits are for the future there? Well, one would expect that uh, an owner of a, a property um, is aware of roughly you know, what the development potential for their surrounds might be. I mean, obviously that's not the case in many circumstances and council will usually let people know if they're about to change um, the planning controls or, and or allow a, a, a tall development to go up next door. The thing is that you can't be too hard on developers. There's a lot of old building stock out there that needs to be replaced because it's so hopelessly energy inefficient mm. and there's a real need for affordable housing and really good quality, low em- uh, low embodied emissions developments to go up and there are lots of guys out there doing a really great job in doing that. As to whether council needs to go around and give everybody a heads up, well, <laughs> most planning proposals will have a, uh, or development applications, there'll be a notification period and that's the opportunity whereby a private landowner whose uh, right to light is going to be uh, um, take a bit of a hit because of a development, that's where they can engage in a private arrangement with the developer to have the developer pay to move their panels to another part of the roof, perhaps move further up towards the top of the roof or to, uh, if it's going to completely overshadow their panels, perhaps um, assist in the removal and the sale of the panels and making up the difference. Um, I'm yet to see or hear of any circumstances where a developer will basically assist in the payment of an overshadowed private residence with, uh, like, let's say, for example, 100% green power from uh, you know, turbines down in the down the coast, for example, um, there's not very many uh, opportunities for those sorts of arrangements to be entered into, and that in itself is another area of opportunity. Mm. So it sounds like private arrangement is sort of the only road to go down but might not be in the interest of the sort of small individual that has their solar panels. Well, yes, at this stage. And, uh, again, that's, that's, I think, something where you will need some sort of... Um, government intervention to, mm. to work out some sort of scheme that uh, there's a bit of certainty, um, allowing developers to be able to proceed with their um, developments, which again, you know, in a lot of cases, are really are much needed. Absolutely. Um, but in a way that uh, in a way that doesn't hurt the, the little guy mm. and uh, allows for energy to be continue to be sourced from from renewable sources. Because if we're going to move towards you know net zero emissions by 2050 or earlier. Um, this is something that really, really needs to get moving now. And in a lot of cases, you simply can't wait. You can't sit back and wait for the government to uh, make these sorts of decisions. And so you, you sort of have to be a bit proactive and, and look for the opportunities in where they arise, even when it might seem like a bit of a, a bit of a downer if your little place is about to have a eight-storey residential flat building go up next to it and block so- your sunlight. There are still opportunities there. So, Peter, have, have there been some attempts to, to regulate this or which jurisdictions have, have worked on this? Very few attempts. No jurisdictions actively working towards it beyond putting in requirements for new development to not overshadow um, neighbouring private open um, spaces. But again, that, that only comes back to making sure that your living room has sunlight just because that's, as you said earlier, uh, a human almost like a human requirement for a little bit of sun, it doesn't take into account overshadowing of solar panels. It doesn't take into account um, the extra amount of sunlight that's needed for a, um, a passive solar-designed house with that internal thermal body to actually soak up enough heat over the course of the day. And decisions, um, you know, disputes that have gone before the courts in a lot of jurisdictions um, 
have gone down on the fact that there is no um, statutory framework or, or any sort of move made by governments to, uh, to start to get the balance right on that front. Listeners, today we're talking to Peter, Peter Clark. Um, you've just joined the Beyond Zero Emissions Climate Solutions Show and we're talking to Peter Clark from Hones Lawyers about solar shading disputes. So, Peter, what's the way forward with this? Do you, do you have a, a set of recommendations about what sort of reforms are, are really needed in this area and what level they're needed at? Well, obviously, from a, a private sector perspective, there are there are lots of opportunities um, to, to discuss with clients on a, a case by case basis to, to work out ways that you know you can move forward. Because you have, on a practical sense, that's all you can do at this stage. In terms of uh, opportunities going forward and policy and law reform, um, you know, I, I, I echo the sentiments of. of the great minds in, in this particular field, people like Nari Sahuka and, and Rachel Walmsley in the policy and law reform team at EDO New South Wales, they've given a lot, lot of thought to how you can kind of balance out um, the need to have a, um, move forward with the right amount of development that we need to see and protecting that right. I would personally, though, um, consider that new developments uh, ought to obviously have every possible roof space and you know car parking space covered in panels such that they're more than uh, they're generating more than enough um, energy for the needs of all of the uh, in the residents of that residential flat building and then they can start to look for opportunities to uh, enter into um, and this is a bit difficult because there's, there's not yet a, a really um, permissible way to get around the regulations that prevent you selling directly to your neighbor um, but be able to then basically go, right, well, this lovely big new development has overshadowed that little house down there. I'm going to sell my electricity to them at the same rate that they might buy it from a, you know, a 100% green power source or cheaper because, you know, it's right next door. Those sorts of things, um, you know, to have that sort of approach enshrined in um, the requirements, the legislation that govern new development, I mean, that's obviously a, a massive step in the right direction. Um, so it's, so it's not only planning regulation that we need to improve, it's also the electricity retailing sector and, and how that's regulated. And that is a very, very um, difficult situation to, to conscientiously deal with in light of the fact that you've got the uh, energy um, generators and distributors who've understandably poured billions of dollars and decades of work into keeping our lights on, having to face the reality that we simply must transition away from status quo, how do they deal with that? To what extent can that be managed? Because um, that business model, as we know, is would be severely threatened by such a, um, a an arrangement whereby every new development has panels covering the roof and then sells on to, to neighbouring businesses mm-hmm. that have a slightly higher uh, draw on the grid. There's that, so it does go beyond planning and environmental law reform. It, it, it's, it's such a massive issue, but we all need to get talking about it, thinking about potential solutions, getting on board and seeing the positives in it, because it's great for homeowners. It'd be great for developers. Uh, it's just, and of course, it's great for the environment and for the planet. It's just a win-win all round. Yes. So it's just balancing all those different interests. And, and as you've mentioned earlier, keeping things reasonable and, and fair in the process. Absolutely. You can't inconvenience, uh, any one party in these sort of circumstances, but the other reality is that we're all, you know, to, to borrow the term, it is an inconvenient uh, truth that we're having to face. 
Um, and we can't uh, use uh, avoidance of inconvenience as a way of not doing anything. That we have to do more than we're presently doing, and that involves us all kind of doing up the belt buckles with a couple of notches. Yes. Um, that's, yeah. Absolutely. It's a burden to be shared. So, um, oh, Peter, this is a bit of a question without notice, but typically Europe are well ahead of us in, in regulating these kinds of areas. Do you, do you know, are there other countries doing this well that, that we can learn from? Uh, the, the passive house movement over in Germany, I think, um, is just trailblazing in every sense of the word. Um, it's the concept of the, the, you know, it's almost like the, the living building challenge where you've got buildings that every aspect of it, uh, the construction, all of the emissions generated by building the house, all of the emissions generated by the, the materials that go into the house, and of course the, then the living uh, in the house and all of the emissions that are generated as a result of that, they're all um, minimised, mitigated or offset to follow the mitigation hierarchy. Germany has around about the same concentration of sun as Tasmania. And the fact that they are able to generate such a ridiculously huge percentage of their residential or there's a nationwide um, amount of electricity from renewable re- uh, renewable sources, I mean, they really are showing us up to quite a, a significant extent. Absolutely. Um, their, their, their policy approach, um, their design uh, ethos, and basically just the... <laughs> The way that the entire, every aspect of, um, of their, their economy is you know, fairly, you know, fairly quickly pivoting towards um, embracing energy being generated from renewable resources, renewable sources, and focusing on the fact that that then means that you have to use less in every every aspect of um, planning and environment, building, transport, the whole works. Um, we we have a lot to learn from the way that they are embracing it and the attitude that they're taking towards it. They see the positives and it, it, it really is a... The, the positives are palpable. I think we've, we could really um, follow them. So how, how, how has they resolved some of these regulatory issues? Uh, look, that's a great question. I, I haven't had the opportunity to... I, mean, I, I, I don't know how many um, sources actually take the time to go through and translate... A, a lot of the um, yeah. policy decisions <laughs> and, and the your German's outcomes. not that good. <laughs> uh, no, no, so good. It's not, uh, so I, I really, I'm afraid, I really, I really couldn't say. But uh, I would love to know if there's anybody out there that knows. <laughs> Fantastic. So you've you've mentioned about you know some alternative approaches to rather than you know having a, a dispute. Uh, it have. What sort of strategies have been tried for you know between people who are in disagreement about this to to resolve their access to sunlight for you know competing properties? Yeah, yeah. Um, look, talk early and talk often with your neighbours who are planning some, uh, a development that may impact on your um, you know your, your passive solar designed living spaces or your solar panels. Um, present solutions and present the, 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 the positives that will arise as a result. Um, be mindful um, and considerate of the fact that everybody has a reasonable expectation to be able to develop their land to the maximum of its ability as dictated by local planning controls. Um, and be prepared to compromise to some extent. Um, and remember that your neighbours are your neighbours for a very long time. <laughs> You really do want to get on with them, and if, if that does mean in 
you know, taking um, some small step to basically balance out and be reasonable about proposals, and so be it. It's only when there is a severe uh, impact that uh, that you ought to consider seeking legal advice, mm. but still bearing in mind that you really do want to work towards an amicable solution. Um, you know, we're, we're here to, to get the best outcome for everybody. Um, and we don't, nobody wants to uh, have a fight about these sorts of things. It's always the, the last um, and worst case scenario. How significant do you think these issues are? Are they arising often? Well, unfortunately not. Um, let's say, for example, here in New South Wales, there's a particular law that controls trees overshadowing um, private living areas. And they've said seven uh, seven years ago, uh, they came out and said that it does not in any way cover solar panels. And so as a result, anybody who's got neighbours' trees overshadowing their panels, they'll go and seek legal advice and the lawyers will simply say, look, that decision's been made. There is no power for you to do anything about it. You have to go to, to your neighbours. And so I think that there is, it's an example of why we don't hear a lot about this because People either feel powerless or if they do want to take the power and go and get some advice, they realise that they don't really have very many options. Looking back to what I said earlier, it is an area that is just uh, ripe for reform. It can only go up, put it that way. Peter, your advice in the prior question just seems sounds very... Like there's a, a lot of pain and <laughs> hard, hard-won wisdom in that. So for listeners who've got concerns, you're saying the uh, first port of call is just really trying to maintain open communication and then I guess perhaps local council is the, is the next point for, for discussing these issues. In, in some circumstances, yes, some councils can, are willing to, to provide some, um, some input and some guidance on these sorts of private disputes. Most do not, most don't. It's a problem for you to, go, to sort out. You do, of course, have community justice centres in New South Wales that can assist with mediation if you're not getting anywhere and you need somebody to sort of step in and and, and guide the conversation. You've got the neighbourhood justice centres down in Victoria as well. Um, There are smaller scale but similar uh, offerings available in other states in Australia. So there is um, free assistance that that you can obtain to basically work through these sorts of disputes. Well worth looking at if uh, initial lines of communication can't be opened, Um, but legal action is a last resort. Last resort. That's all we've got time for today. Peter, thank you very much for all that information. You're most welcome. Thank you very much. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show again to pick up some of those tips or any of the others we've done, then you can go to www.bze.org.au and click on podcasts. If you enjoy the program and would like to support the excellent work of BZE, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we hope we'll catch you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.